The scripture reading this evening is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. We're going to begin in verses 1 and uh, read through verse 12. We're edging slowly along a few verses at a time through the first chapter here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. We're going to begin in, in, in verses 1. But our sermon text this evening is verses 6 and 7. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Let us listen with reverence and with awe. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. We'll close this prayer with the, uh, the Lord's Prayer as well. Father in heaven, we come before your throne this evening. We ask uh, your blessing on, on, you, on your preached word, your, te- your taught word. Father, you do promise by your word to lead us and to guide us, you promise by your word and the, and, the, and the teaching of it to nourish our hearts. And so we ask that blessing now that it would edify our hearts and lead us to Christ. And Father, we pray even now as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, in verse 5, Peter indicated, or in verse 3 through 5, Peter indicated that we've been guarded through faith for salvation that's yet to be revealed. And so we rightly wonder, all right, okay, so what's that about? What does it mean to be guarded through faith in this present evil age? What's faith look like? What's it going to meet? What's it going to endure? 
especially since it hasn't fully received the salvation that he wrote in the end of verse 5 that has yet to be revealed. So faith is living in this present age. It's yet to be revealed, uh, the fullness of salvation that we've achieved, which means we aren't where we belong. So what's it mean to believe while we continue in, the pil- in our pilgrimage, while we continue as pilgrims? Well, he indicates that it's, one, it's a life that's really full of suffering, to believe through a life that's characterized by suffering. Now, of course, there are are few stories I think that we can think of or that come to mind when we think of suffering as as one as ex, extreme in their display of suffering as that of the story of Job. It's a well-known story. You recall that uh, at the opening of chapter one, the devil comes before the Lord, and the uh, and the Lord asks Satan, "What have you been up to?" And the devil responds to the Lord, I've been going to and from about the earth. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? Have you seen my servant Job? How there's nobody like him, a faithful servant. He's upright, he's true, he's honest, he serves me with fear and with trembling. And the devil says to the Lord, before his heavenly court, well, yeah, no duh. Look at how you've hedged him in. Look at the way that you've blessed him. Look at the way you've caused him to prosper. Have you not given everything into his hand? Have you not caused him to prosper? Of course he serves you. It suits him. And throughout the course of the story, we watch uh, as the Lord hands the devil or Job over into the hands of the devil to do with as he wishes. We watch as everything that Job has is ripped away from him. And we watch the story of a sufferer who grapples with and wrestles with in faith the trials that have afflicted him. And of course, the end of the story concludes with the Lord coming to Job and speaking to him. And he says, who is this that contends with the Almighty? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without wisdom? And Job says, I've spoken once. I won't speak again. And so the story is really about a suffering saint. It's really about what our two verses indicate here today. They're about the way that trials sharpen and try and purify our faith. And the way that God uses them to to develop our faith into a more mature and hearty trust in Him. And of course, this all has a particular end. It all has a particular purpose in sight. That not only would we ourselves be those that give praise and glory and honor to Jesus Christ and to God, the triune God on that last day, but that he himself, having completed our faith, would then pour out on us glory and honor and praise. So we'll look at that this evening in three points. Faith that's flammable, faith that's tried and purified, and then faith that's completed. So Peter opens in verse 6 saying, in this you greatly rejoice, or we could uh, could conceive of it as because of this you rejoice. Here he's referring, of course, back this being all of the realities that we discussed last week in verse 3 to 5. In other words, it leads them to great joy when they think about what God has done for them in Christ Jesus, the mercy that they've been given, and the snapshot that he's put before them of their heavenly inheritance. You can't get anything better than that. So they rejoice. They have a a supreme amount of delight 
They savor the, 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 the taste of heaven that they've received. They savor the knowledge that God in mercy has caused them to be born again and that he, he pours out His grace by guarding their faith. These things bring the people of God great joy, don't they? When we think on these realities, it brings us joy, it brings us praise. We want to sing out and we sing praise. But then Peter moves drastically from ecstasy to agony. And he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't deceive anybody. He tells them how it is. Now for a little while reminds us of two things then. It reminds us that this time is short, but it also reminds us, of course, as we looked at last week, that right now is not all there is. It reminds us that, that, that while we suffer in this short period of time, there is something so much better that is to come. And it's only a short while. Now, I think a, a helpful illustration of, some, of why this is so important is, is and, and kids, this, this illustration is aimed at you, but it is not the only time in the service that you have to listen. When I was young, my parents would uh, insist that we ate everything that was placed on our plates at the table. Uh, the, particular, the particular evil vegetable that I disliked so much was uh, green beans. So, so the promise was, okay, well, either you sit here and you eat your green beans, or you don't get your ice cream, or oftentimes, if you didn't eat your food, uh, if you got up from the table and you came and you said, hey, mom, I'm hungry, do you know what would be on the table for you? Green beans. So, so the promise here is, of course, that when you're trying to coax your child to eat their food, you might say to them, okay, you eat your green beans, and if you eat all your veggies, and if you eat all your food, then you can have your ice cream. And so kids, what do you do? You might eat all of the green beans first and it might be really yucky and you might make a whole lot of faces because you don't like the taste and it feels nasty when you swallow it. But you know that after a short while, you have something so much better that's waiting for you. Ice cream. So, something important. It's something real. It's something valid for us to think on, for us as pilgrims to recognize in order that we might be encouraged to persevere and endure in the present, especially when we go through various trials, like eating green beans. Knowing that it's a short while, knowing that this isn't all that there is, that we look forward to something else, enables us to continue to endure in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our grieving, in the midst of the trials that come and visit us and knock on our doors. It makes the suffering that's relatively brief more bearable. But I'll also notice from these phrases here where he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, this indicates to us that the Bible doesn't look down on the sufferer. The Bible doesn't trivialize your suffering. It doesn't ignore it. It doesn't walk right past it. It doesn't gaslight people really grappling with the reality of discomfort. The Bible recognizes suffering. I think this is important for us to recognize. 
Because there's a lot of people out there today that, that would look at the, the Christian faith and say, it, it, it invalidates your suffering. And it doesn't give solid answers to your suffering. That the scriptures, that the apostles, that God, that the Lord Jesus Christ are ambivalent to the anguish of his people. But notice the way that Peter plainly, plainly acknowledges the, way, the, the, the trials that the people he's writing to is going, are going through. He cuts right to it all. I know you're suffering right now various trials. The reality is that the joy of knowing our ultimate destiny does not make the distress of our current circumstances any less real. And so the apostle and so we today recognize the dismal nature of life that, that it can be quite dark, that it can be characterized by a whole lot of bleakness. So Peter opens with this first verse in a concessive manner. Like, yeah, this great thing is held out to us. A good thing is held out to us. But actually, your pain is real. Your discomfort is real. It's not an age of total dominating triumph. We may be victors in Christ, but we don't have the full taste yet. And notice also here, and throughout the rest of the letter, Peter doesn't go to prescribe how to fix it and how to get rid of the discomfort. What is he doing? He's describing the character of their life. He's describing the character of their life and then goes on to describe how they might endure, but not how to get rid of the problem. Because the problem is characteristic of this world. So he describes its character. This is real. This is what it's going to be like. And buckle in. Because it's one characterized by grieving caused by various trials. So then we wonder rightly, what does this grieving mean? What can we associate with the grieving that Peter is describing for the people that he's writing to? Well, it means mental or emotional distress. It's a term used in the ancient world to describe the emotional response of a great financial loss of relational turmoil, uh, of the overall emotional response to the pain of everyday life or of a tragic event like the loss of a child. This is the word that he chooses to use to define this. And, and, and these experiences or the emotions that, that lead to this can take a variety of forms. It's not limited to just one thing. And I think that our initial in instinct is to say, oh, well, this is probably some kind of persecution. Well, not quite. The time period that Peter is writing, in the time period that Peter is writing, blatant, outright government persecution of believers wasn't really happening yet. Of course, you know in chapter 4, and we'll see and study more there, that it, what was really beginning to take place was that the believers were starting to feel just how out of sorts they were in the communities that they lived. They are, uh, they are starting to receive verbal assault and ostracism for their faith. So that's certainly an application of these various kinds of trials that lead us to distress. But it's not the only one. And I think a helpful way of getting at what kind of things bring us this kind of emotional distress and pain is by asking, why do we suffer various trials? I would argue precisely because we're Christians. 
because we're out of touch with this world, because we, we don't belong here anymore. Because Christian life often brings us into conflict with this world, with its pursuits and with its pleasures, with its ease and with its bliss unending. The kind of life that the Christian lives is not the kind of life that dominates the life of, unbelie- of the unbelieving world. So for the sake of honoring Christ, we often, we often make decisions that lead us to suffer for Christ, that lead us to a higher level of turmoil, that lead us to a higher level of discomfort. And you might protest and you would say, well, it shouldn't be that way. And I would say that you're right. But the clock in this world doesn't tick right. And so oftentimes it is, it, is, it is the case that the righteous don't prosper and the wicked do. It often is the case that righteousness does bring affliction or emotional turmoil and distress. It does lead to a more difficult life. So Peter is saying this is what it's going to be like. Buckle up. So it's interesting then, then for him to say, not just, not just to acknowledge that there's various trials, but also to say that it is, if it is necessary. So we infer that the reason that we suffer is that it is necessary because faith puts us out of touch with the world that we live in. Faith makes us unfit for this age. It, it reminds us that we're aliens. It reminds us that we, we don't belong here. We don't have the same rights. But also, it's not just that we're out of touch and and, and suffer various kinds of trials or grieve various kinds of trials because of simply our faith making us unfit for this age. The discomfort, the pain, the conflict, the spiritual affliction we feel is also a result of the fact that God is sovereign. And we can infer this simply from that word, if necessary. Because whatever isn't necessary, we don't suffer. Because if it were not necessary, it wouldn't be something that we did suffer. I'm going to say that again, because it kind of, it's wording that's kind of confusing. Whatever is not necessary, we don't suffer. Because if it were not necessary, it wouldn't be something that we suffer. Why? Because God is sovereign. So whatever we do suffer, we suffer simply because it is necessary in the hands of a sovereign God. And that's actually something that I think is quite comforting to us. That's counterintuitive. That's not a message you won't hear out in the world. That the the, the reality that we suffer necessarily and that it's in God's control, you don't hear that every day. But it brings us comfort simply because we know he's in control. It brings us comfort because it means that he doesn't bring us trials arbitrarily. It doesn't bring God delight to make his people suffer pointlessly. So when we do suffer, when we do grieve, when we do recognize that that there's a, a natural pain that characterizes life in this age, We can trust his plan for where we are now. We can trust his plan because we recognize that we're pilgrims. We can trust his plan because he has us in the wilderness necessarily for a reason. 
And this is what I mean by a faith that's flammable. Because by faith, we're out of touch. We, what, we, we become like, like a dry and parched forest in the heat of the summer. It's not just that. It leads us to the fact that if God is, suffer, is sovereign and we don't suffer pointlessly, then indeed He certainly has a purpose for our suffering and that He will lead us to suffer for His sake. Faith is flammable. It makes you easy to ignite the problems and the discomfort and, and the, the, the troubles of this age. So, suffering, anguish, the dismal reality, it isn't arbitrary, it isn't pointless. If we have it, it is necessary, and as Peter indicates in verse 7, it actually has a very definite purpose. So that the tested genuine, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. God proves our faith in the furnace of trial and affliction. So here's the point of this section. In the furnace of affliction, faith is both tried and purified through, through trial. The furnace that burns gold has a dual purpose. It not only indicates that uh, that the, the, when you put gold in the fire, it not only indicates that the, the alloy coming through, the gold coming through is true gold, it's not, it's not fool's gold, but it also burns away all the dross, all that is not pure, so that what you have is a pure gold product in the end. And so similarly, what Peter is indicating here is that faith, when put through the refiner's fire, is purified, so that anything that is not of faith is burned away. But it is also tried so that the final product is indeed true, enduring faith. In other words, if it doesn't endure, it wasn't real gold. It wasn't real faith. It was fool's gold. You know, this is testified elsewhere in Scripture, this analogy of, of God using fire as a, as a depiction of the way that he distinguishes true faith from false faith. So you think on that famous passage in, in Micah 3.3, 3, there he says he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So true faith here is tried and shows itself to be true metal. Enduring the fire. True faith is purified and thus comes out more pure, mature, and conformed to the righteousness of God. He has a purpose here in bringing the Levites through trial that they might be righteous, righteous priests, righteous servants of the Lord. So affliction burns and sears away everything that is not true faith. Now, despite these key similarities between faith and gold when they meet fire, there is also a, a key difference. Gold perishes, but faith is of infinitely more value and enduring value than gold is. The currency of God's kingdom is not 24 karat gold. It's 24 karat faith. It's tried and true faith faith that excels past this kingdom because it actually doesn't belong here. Faith that excels past this kingdom because it doesn't originate from this world order. 
Faith that excels past this age because it belongs to heaven and comes from heaven, intruding into this age, into the hearts of God's people in order that they would become unfit for this place and be something that endures beyond the scope of what this realm can offer. And so then trials should not surprise us or cause us to doubt God's faithfulness. And I think we could say, rather, we should be glad for them. Why? Because they're necessary in the hand of God to develop our faith. Because through these trials in the sovereign hand of our loving Savior King, He tests and tries our faith that we might become more perfect image bearers. I think we can make a note here. I think that generally speaking, we have a tendency to become so wrapped up with trying to read providence and figuring out exactly what it is that God is doing and why he's doing it. And we wind up becoming just like Job, demanding an answer that conforms to something that we can understand or demanding, Lord, I'm righteous. I've been righteous in this. Why have you made me suffer? We overlook the reality that we can actually just trust. And not just trust, but take joy and comfort. What could be more comforting than knowing that the God who did not spare his own son to redeem you and me orders everything in your life, your trials, your suffering, your anguish, your discomfort, your pain, so that you might be a person characterized by a deeper and more pure level of faith. That ought to bring us comfort. That ought to bring us joy. So that we might, like the old adage adage says, learn to kiss the waves that throw us against the rock of ages. And oftentimes, the reality is, and I think this is something that's particularly applicable for those of you in high school and heading off into college, life gets a whole lot more difficult. And the faith that's required gets a whole lot more difficult. And you'll find that your faith is just hanging on by a thread. So the reality in times like these is, even when it's hanging on by a thread, that's an indication of faith. That's an indication of trust. And so you wind up concluding and crying out to the Lord, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And through that furnace of affliction, you you who were once young in your faith have a deeper, pure level of faith to withstand the trials that God will bring you later. And so the question becomes, don't you want a more pure faith that slowly through the, the, the lifetime of trial has been seared and cleaned of Anything that is not of faith. Don't you want a faith that's like the very best heat-tempered metal? Well, affliction is for you. The pilgrimage is for you. The wilderness is for you. And then you become just like Job, who at the end of the story understands something about God that he did not, and who confesses as we considered earlier. I am not one to contend with the Almighty. I've spoken once. I won't speak again. 
within the drama of the story of Job, by the end of the story, Job has a faith that's completed, and the result is that he's then rewarded and crowned with glory and honor. He's rewarded and crowned with glory and honor because he himself was a faithful representative of God, who when God was put on trial, on the stand in his own courtroom by the devil, God put Job on to say, test my servant Job and he will prove me right. So Job has now, by the end of the story, exalted the Lord and proved to be a faithful, have have an enduring and purified faith. And in doing so, he brings praise and honor to God. And the result of that is then that God then pours out on his own servant praise and glory and honor. Because he had a faith that's completed. We mentioned earlier that Scripture often uses images of, of fire for God trying and purifying human souls. And so in prophetic literature, this has a definite purpose. It purifies and prepares men. uh, It purifies men uh, by burning up all that isn't of faith in order that they might be fit for heaven, for heavenly perfected life. And this brings us, of course, to the third point this evening, faith that's completed. Now we're getting this because Peter says in verse 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. So our suffering then has an ultimate result in this scheme. It's one that achieves a particular end. That God's people would be conformed to their created and glorified image. So that when Christ returns, it will result in praise and glory and honor. Now, there's, this, there's a lot of questions about whether or not it's, it's, it's us or it's God who receives this praise and glory and honor that Peter speaks of here at the end of the verse. And I would contend that it's both and. It's both God that receives praise and glory and honor, and it's us that receives praise and glory and honor. God, uh, God did not create us so that he might become more glorious. He created us so that he might in us display his glory through those who bear his image. And so that glory and honor and praiseworthy nature of mankind, we know, was was lost in the fall. The goal then, the result that God is trying to achieve through this work that he's doing and trying and purifying our faith through these fiery furnaces is to conform our faith back to those who are perfected reflections of his image. Those who refract his own glory and praise and honor. And so in in restoring us to that image through tried and purified faith, God himself is glorified in us and through us. If you consider the relationship between the Father and the Son over and over and over again in John's Gospel, we see the son confessed, I came to glorify the father. And then, and then in the high priestly prayer, he goes before the Lord and the first thing that he says is, Father, I've glorified your name. I will glorify it again. And he requests even that, that the, the, the time has come, he says, for you to glorify my name. So we see this mutual glorification happening between the father and the son. And we see this also with the spirit we found out, find out in John chapter 16 comes to exalt the Son. To glorify and honor and praise the Son. 
or make the Son's name praised. So the, the Son glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies the Son and exalts the Son. The Spirit exalts the Son, the Son exalts the Spirit. And so on, we see this reciprocal relationship in the Trinity. We think even on Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary for Christ to suffer all these things and then enter into glory? So I contend we, we actually follow the pattern of Christ's own life when we say that we suffer first and then enter into glory. To say that we suffer and glorify God in glory. Now, of course, it's, it's not the same to say that we glorify God the Father and God glorifies us as His people in the same way that the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father. God glorifies, honors, and praises, uh, makes our name praiseworthy in Christ for one reason and for one reason alone. Because He has perfected our faith, because He has purified our faith, so that we are conformed into His perfected image bearers. He has restored us to that original plan for creation that his people would be a kingdom of priests that, that display and make known his glory to the ends of the earth. Something that was once lost and is now being restored. So do you not think that he is praised by that and his name exalted when on that day those who were once tainted with sin and death are now in glorified bodies with unable to sin? Do you not think upon that day that he will not look upon those who suffered the furnace and proved to be the best heat-tempered metal? Do you not think he will not look upon you, saints of God, and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Do you not think he will look upon those whose, whose life he gave his son for and say, with great joy, welcome home. Enter into the joy of your master. Uh, the skeptical hedonist, uh, the, the skeptical person who believes that all of life is about pleasure, might look at all of this and say, okay, well, God's just out for his own glory. It's a selfish act. Job's just out for the return of his reward. He was hedging his bets to get everything back. And you yourselves, you Christians, you're just hedging your bets. You're willing to suffer a little bit now so that you can have your pie in the sky. So it turns out that everybody is selfish in pursuit of their own pleasure. Well, there's a number of problems with this. The hedonist doesn't have any category for creation, fall, and redemption. They can't affirm what was good. They can't affirm what is good. They can't affirm what suffering is or isn't. They can't affirm what we were created for. They cannot affirm the purpose of creation or its aim. Now, we, of course, aren't against the concept of pleasure or the good, but the crux of the Christian faith is not the fact that life is all about the pursuit of pleasure or the absence of pain or one day having our pie in the sky. The crux of our faith is on the fact that the good or the best pleasure was lost and it was restored. 
That communion with God as perfect image bearers was lost and is being restored by the Son who came out of the, out of the heavenly court to take on human flesh and embody itself suffering and purchase with His blood not just redemption, but purchase with His blood entrance into the city gates. So that we might then, as people washed with His blood, credited with His righteousness, be glorified in bodies, and live with God in all eternity as people who are radiant reflections of His glory. So that's the good thing in creation that's worth pursuing. That's the thing to be pursued. It's the thing worth pursuing. It's not a bad or selfish pleasure to long for because glorified image bearers is literally what we were created to be. From the very beginning, God offered to Adam the promise of glorified life. So for us to be there when Jesus is revealed from heaven and comes riding down on the clouds to glorify our lowly bodies to be like his own is the tell us of all of human creation. It's the pleasurable thing that we should long for more than anything else. So the point of this is that we can enjoy the good things in creation here and now and yet simultaneously in the fires of affliction that we endure all our life long we can endure with joy and a simple childlike trust because we recognize that the highest good, the best good to be enjoyed and pursued lies just on the other side of this affliction. It's a time when we are perfect reflections of His praise and His glory and honor, restored to perfect communion with God. It's a time when God Himself will look upon His people and pour out on them the same and pour out on them praise and honor and glory and when we ourselves will reflect his praise his honor and his glory in Christ Jesus for the work of salvation and i think that's something that makes suffering a little bit less overcoming and consuming and debilitating for the people of god We don't espouse a victim mentality. We want to critique that. We don't want to be consumed by our anguish. And yet at the same time, the Bible doesn't look down on the sufferer. It validates his anguish. It validates his suffering. And yet at the same time, it convicts the one who endures trials and tells them that he cannot be swept away by it, but must respond to it in faith. Because that's what faith does. Faith, when met with trials, is purified like gold. Faith, when met with trials, is proved true gold, not fool's gold. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and we give you praise for the way that you order our lives, for the way that you conduct our lives. That you order affliction such that it would conform us to your image. You order affliction such that we might one day be those that you pour out and share your your glory and praise with and that we ourselves might be those who cause your name to be exalted above the earth. Father, we ask that you would help us this week to do that more faithfully. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.